encourage you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 this morning. Sorry, Andrew. As you open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, you may notice that we're a little out of order in our study of 1 Corinthians. The nature of preaching here at East White Oak is typically of an expositional and comprehensive study through the Word of God, going through each text of the book, verse by verse, explaining the meaning, declaring with both encouragement and exhortation what the passage is saying to us, as well to the original recipients, not just choosing the text that we like, but also taking on the challenging texts that rarely get preached simply because they're difficult. Pastor Scott, our senior pastor, has noted before that this will not always be pleasant in the moment, for the word of the Lord itself is not always pleasant at the moment. However, it is so very good for us not to hear the words of fallible men, but the eternal word of the living God. Then we trust the Holy Spirit to work in all of us, to take God's word, to apply it to our hearts so that the Lord is glorified in our lives. So when you open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 here, we've separated the chapter into two Sunday messages, the first on the first 16 verses and the second on the last half of the chapter. As the order of going through the passages would have put us on covering the first half of the chapter today, Pastor Scott had a particular heart for that message and will preach that next week instead. So we're a little out of order. But we believe this is okay for several reasons. First, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, Paul says, Now I commend you, and then proceeds to give a commendation with additional instructions that need to be understood regarding headship. Then in 1 Corinthians 7, 11, 17, Paul says, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, and proceeds to give a critique of the practices of the Lord's table in the Corinthian church. So Scott gets to do the commending, and I get to do the not commending this morning. The chapter's divided into two, the first accommodation, the second a not commendation. We didn't see any particular reason why he may have chose the order here, other than possibly he wanted to give the good news first. The message today, observing the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. We're going to see in this passage that the Corinthians are in need of chastisement and redirection on how they're managing the Lord's Supper. Communion. When Paul warns of the problem of misbehavior at the Lord's Supper in Corinth, it's a significant thing. Not only here does the apostle rebuke the sins of the Corinthians, the Corinthian believers, but you'll see his language changes from you to we as he broadens the exhortation to be inclusive of all believers, including himself. His exhortation at this point will apply not only to the Corinthians, but to all Christians. The Corinthians have been guilty of a specific fault which he'll rebuke, but all Christians are sinners, thus all Christians alike, the apostle also, are responsible to examine and to judge themselves. Let's see what Paul means by this in the study this morning. If you'll stand with me for the reading of God's word, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. 
And I believe this in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those that are genuine among you might be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another goes drunk, gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat in and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God, humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I further received, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it, said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Verse 28, let a person examine himself then, so he eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill. Some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About these other things, I'll give you directions when I come. You may be seated. Paul begins this section here with a reproach about breaking fellowship will not be commended. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you as you come together, he says. This coming together will be mentioned five different times in this passage. The coming together could have been at one of the wealthier Christian members' homes where there would have been adequate space for all to gather. As Paul says, their gathering is not for the better, but for the worse. Why? Because they're segregating people when they came to the Lord's Supper for communion. They're discriminating against those in the church that would be forced to squeeze perhaps into second-class citizen areas of the home. He says, why come together in such a big fancy house if you're just going to separate and cast one another aside? What we'll learn here is that Paul doesn't even mention where they ought to be gathering because regardless of where they gather, the factions are becoming divisive and they're splitting up the body of Christ. This is the bride of the church. He says, your coming together is not for the better but for the worse. Paul wants them to understand here that the reason that they're gathering is for the integration and for the unity and that what they're doing is causing inequality and alienation. I'd rather you wouldn't even meet at all, Paul is saying. He'll tell them later in the passage here the harmful effects that will happen if they continue. The Corinthian problem is not just their failure to gather, is not their failure to gather, but their failure here is to be God's newly formed people when they're gathering. To Christ, there is to be neither Jew nor Greek, 
slave nor free, neither rich nor poor. But here they're splitting people up upon these lines. They must stop their harmful actions. Verse 18, he says here, for in the first place, as in this is the primary issue that Paul wants to address with them, at the end of the chapter he says about other things, I'll give directions when I come. For this unholy gathering contradicts what the Lord's Supper stands for, which is proclaiming the foundation of the church, Christ's sacrifice for others. This is a quote-unquote church problem. This ecclesia, this gathering of the church body, not the building or home they were in or the building that we're here in today, but the actual corporate assembly, the gathering of believers, he wants to make the distinction here that this problem that he's about to address is not happening outside the context of the gathered church, but when they're gathering. When you come together as a church, he says, I hear there are divisions among you. There's a schism in the church, a rent or a tear in the fabric of how the church ought to operate and how it is to treat its members. There's a split, a schism, a gap among the people. The same people that Christ has died for was crucified for to unite them together under him. And now they're being separated and mistreated, both in the breaking of their fellowship but also breaking the calling that Christ has given them on their lives for holy living. Paul says at the end of verse 18, and I believe it in part. So perhaps he's saying that he wants to verify these claims firsthand, or he's being polite to not be so harsh too quickly. But the subsequent verses show us that it's clear there are divisions, and he knows about it. Verse 19, these factions or divisions among the believers are evident to Paul from the reports that he received. And maybe with a little sarcasm here, he says that there can still be a divine good result even when evil things are present. For he says, those approved may be evident. The presence of those doing selfish things juxtaposes or allows for a comparison of those who are doing rightly. Those who are recognized for doing rightly are those that are observing the Lord's table in a worthy manner, bringing holy observance to the communion of the bread and the wine, setting apart those who have examined themselves, proven servants, worshipers of the Lord, demonstrating of them being inclusive of all believers. For make no mistake, God will work out his purpose and his designs even through divisions in the church. These factions have a purifying and a refining effect on the church, sifting those who belong to God and follow after him and separating those that are wolves from their mists. Not that you guys are the wolves and you guys are the ones that are being commended, but I'm going to keep pointing to either side, so don't be offended, please. Verse 20 and 21, we see that there are some who are not observing the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. And Paul will sharply address them. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. He's trying to say here that it doesn't even matter the actual food or drink you put in your mouths. Never mind the words that you say or the prayers that you utter or the work you do with your hands. For if you do those things while breaking the fellowship of the church, 
by ostracizing God's people, pushing them aside, treating them unfairly, letting selfishness and pride well up within you, it's not even the Lord's Supper that you eat. It's an abomination. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One gets hungry, one goes hungry, another one gets drunk. Paul is chastising the Corinthians here for this unworthy meal. Some are feasting, some are left hungry. They may not even be provided the communion bread and cup or the meal. Some are getting drunk, abusing what the meal meant to be as a remembrance of the Lord's Supper, not a time of overindulgence. It is difficult for us, though, to discern the difference between these groups and whether or not they're eating dinner separately or they're taking communion separately or ancient Christian documents that talk about this trifold communion of foot washing and the Lord's Supper and communion. It's difficult for us to discern what all he's trying to define here. But what we can take away is that the behavior here at this dinner meal and at this communion, which were most likely combined, there is a breaking of the fellowship. So we must look to Scripture to help us understand. He makes it clear in later verses here that he chastises both the Lord's table and the supper, the meal itself. So I want to take a little trip back into this time of a a Greco-Roman world, and I want us to look at the culture that would have been there in Corinth. We know from the first chapter here that Chloe is the one that's telling Paul of these quarrels among the churches, these divisions that are here. This quarreling and unworthy communion is happening where they gather as a church, so most likely someone's home, for that's the place where people would have met in the days here. Paul writes at the end of Romans, you don't need to turn there, at the end of Romans he gives a list of people that he's thankful for. He thanks his fellow workers, he thanks his kinsmen, he thanks the one who transcribed that letter for him, he thanks the city treasurer, he thanks his Christian brother, and then in Romans 16.23, he thanks Gaius. He's a man in a family household name. He says, thank you to Gaius, who is host to me and host to the whole church. So here we get scriptural reference of the church meeting in homes. So then, likewise, maybe the Corinthian believers are meeting in homes, and in order to have a home that's big enough to hold everyone for them to meet, as in the Hellenistic period of time that we're in, influenced by the Roman colony, the upper-class wealthy Christians most likely were the hosts for these gatherings. Even archaeology shows us rather conclusively the design of what these homes would have looked like, where there would have been a main dining room for 9 to 12 people that would have ate in a fancy way, and then other guests that would have been pushed to the atrium or to the courtyard where they would be separate with their meal. Here we can kind of see a picture of what a Roman domicile would have looked like in the time here. Number one, as you can see on the bottom leading in, is sort of the main entrance into the home here. Number three is sort of the atrium area in the center with that rain-catching pool number four in the center. Number nine, you see our different bedrooms that would have been off of the atrium. And then number seven in that top right-hand corner there would have been an idea of where the main dining room would have been. This number seven, this main dining room, would have sat, like I said, just a handful of people in U-shaped type lounge chairs where the wealthy would lay back and enjoy their meal. Choice meals, choice drinks, 
while others may have been pushed out to the atrium, out aside from the rest of the churchgoers, if they were even there and invited in the first place. The wealthy here in the illustration now enjoy their private supper alone, enjoying their special food and drink, and some getting drunk, and the others are being separated, left to go hungry. See a picture here from the inside, what it would look like looking maybe from one of those dining rooms out into the atrium. Now there's a separation of the church body here. Paul is chastising these well-to-do Corinthians for adopting a class-conscious, culturally normal practice of the day by separating themselves from the slave Christians, let's say. The wealthy now host their own elite private supper, enjoying what they have brought, separating themselves for those that can't afford much, a love feast at which a slave may have only had this as a real meal has been separated from, pushing them out to the next room, not letting them come in the first place. Verse 22 here. What? Do you not have houses to eat and to drink in? Or did you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? The point Paul is talking about here is not what the wealthy eat on their own time or drink day to day, but when they gather on this day, it's not just another dinner party. They gather to remember Christ's sacrifice for the church, for all Christians, for all those that would believe. Christ has died for all sinners. He's speaking in hyperbole here. Should you say he's exaggerating? Do you not have houses that you can go and eat and drink in? For he'd much rather see them feast alone then subject themselves and cast others aside in this displeasing and selfish meal. The elite have embedded in their minds the social standards of the world, and they're putting to shame the poor members of the church. And Paul is astonished. He will not praise them. They're not showing the love of Christ. And furthermore, they're displeasing or despising the church of God, despising this vertical relationship a sin that's going to have dire consequences we see in this chapter. And th so those that go hungry are humiliated since they have so little, and that, that then despises the horizontal relationship in the church. It's clear what Paul's upset about. There's division. The breaking of fellowship will not be commended. The Lord's Supper, if you can even call it that, is being mistreated there is a caste system that is starting to form. It's causing sin in the church. And Paul will continue the chapter here now by giving an accurate account of how the Lord's Supper ought to be conducted. Let's look to the second section here. Breaking bread is an act of worship. Verses 23 through 26. The Lord's Supper is one of the functions of the community of Christ being passed on to us, this tradition looking back to the Passover meal, being passed on to us. It's an act of worship to be done regularly, to remember Christ. There's no explicit instruction here in the New Testament of the frequency of this observance, indications that it may have been weekly, perhaps more frequently, perhaps less frequently. You can look to Acts chapter 2 and chapter 20, but apart from an explicit instruction, the decision regarding the frequency of the observation should find its place with biblical principles, 
and practical considerations. The Lord's Supper should be observed as often, often enough as to prevent a long gap between times of reflecting upon the significance of Christ's work, but not so frequently as it becomes trivial or becomes commonplace and we go through the motions without thinking about the meaning. Here at Eastwood Oak, we observe communion on the first Sunday of the month and the Friday before Resurrection Sunday. For on the night Jesus was portrayed, verse 22, he broke the bread which communicated a deep fellowship. Jesus officiated this Lord's Supper, communicating a depth of relationship and fellowship with his disciples that he desired, for with the church he desires. For in many cultures, that meal is this pinnacle, the highlight or culmination of a relationship. So you can see why Paul is being so harsh here. Those slaves, this may be their only time to eat. They're being cast aside. The community is to be shared. The meal is to be shared. There's to be interdependence upon one another. There's accountability in the church. There's stability in the church. There's a perseverance as the church members link arms with one another and remember and celebrate and proclaim the Lord's death until his resurrection. It brought to mind to me Notre Dame here as pictured. Cathedral in Paris, one of the most iconic and well-known buildings of the world. And the focus here is on these flying buttresses that you can see on the bottom side here. The architectural support here stands off from the wall of the building, typically arched or semicircular in shape. It's a hallmark of the style of the architecture of the time. And it allowed for taller and more slender churches and cathedrals as they transferred the weight of the building and its roof down to its walls through the massive foundation of the arch. This made me think of the arms of the church, each member with its own gifts and function in the body of Christ. We link together, we hold one another up, we're independent on one another, accountable to one another for support, proving and providing stability to withstand. And as magnificent as this cathedral is, it pales in comparison to the beauty of God's living church. In Christ's church, there are deep, meaningful relationships. It's necessary. It's part of community. And we must be willing to let people into our lives for support and for correction, to have people into our homes, to intentionally invite people into our lives, to share our spiritual gifts with one another, to show ourselves friendly, to pursue others, cultivating relationship, building one another up, investing in one another, and then participating in holy communion as the body of Christ, breaking bread at the Lord's table as an act of worship. Verse 24, this is the bread he broke and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Not his physical body, but a symbol of his bodily sacrifice, freely given for the sake of others. 25, this cup of the new covenant is my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Not his physical blood, but a symbol of Christ's blood sacrifice poured out in death. The role of this memorial observance is to bring to mind Christ's death, its significance for the life of the believer. Not so much that Christ and the elements are brought to the partaker, as in here, take these elements, 
but that the partaker is being brought to Christ as he's reminded of the sacrifice Christ made for us on the cross. Verse 26, for you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Paul brings the passage now into perspective for the Corinthians and for us today. He says, for, suggesting that he's reminding them for the process and purpose of communion, for they've forgotten how to celebrate the meal. Their version may have uttered the right words, but the heart behind the feast is not one of sacrificial remembrance. By their abuse of one another, separating and withholding from one another, they mute the point of Christ's work. Paul believes that their actions in this meal does not proclaim the Lord's death, which is why he says that their meal is not the Lord's Supper when they do this. This meal is end times focused. Christ's death is not the end. It's the beginning of the end, for we proclaim it at that meal, the Lord's death, until he comes again. Amen, church? Paul is reminding the Corinthians and us today that our entire existence is but a vapor. We have not arrived. But at this meal, at this table of the Lord, at this supper, this is a reminder of what Christ has done for you, has died for you and died for me for the forgiveness of our sins. Salvation through Christ alone has created a new community of people who bear his name. We miss the point of the communion table if we think that it's only for our own needs, our own sins, our own introspection, our own remembrance. For this meal proclaims the needs for all humanity. Charles Spurgeon once said, practically, it means upon celebrating Christ's death in the Lord's Supper, as often as we break the bread and drink the cup, it evokes no tears. It suggests no size. He says the memorial of Christ's death is a festival, not a funeral. We are to come to that table with gladsome hearts. Breaking bread is an act of worship and how sweet a celebration it is. Our third section here, breaking in your Bible, will help build community. These last eight verses, so what must we do? May I suggest that breaking in your Bibles will help build community, and it will lead you to a life where you're seeking to be a worshiper maturing in Christ. You know, I played baseball through much of my uh, younger years and through high school, and breaking in a new leather glove was important. Do we have any baseball or softball players in the past here? A couple. I played uh, baseball for all these years, and I realized that a well broken-in glove was very important to me. And each player has a special relationship with their glove. Countless catches and grabs mold it to their hand. Every crease and seam, the mitt, has taken a lot of work to shape, but it all starts with a break-in. Before practice, players of all levels should break in their gloves. Breaking your glove ensures that it has the right fit, it's comfortable to wear, it moves smoothly in your hands. Your glove makes a pocket to grip the ball very securely, achieving that perfect fit and feel. The most effective approach to breaking your glove is to catch with it, to use it. You can use a combination of warm water and steam. You can use conditioning oil. 
You can prepare that glove for the best fit. We used to put a baseball inside the glove and wrap it with rubber bands, put it underneath a weight to kind of help mold the glove to the ball. We'd use a glove hammer or a glove mallet to kind of hit the glove when it's in your hand, helping stretch out that pocket, mold it to the ball. Like a well-broken-in baseball glove provides benefit to the player, a well-broken-in Bible is a benefit to the Christian. Paul says in 27 and 28, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink the cup. So in order to examine yourselves here today, you're going to need a broken in Bible that is well read, well memorized, well used and applied then you're going to need a community of believers, of faithful ones to help you daily in your walk with the Lord. The passage here will show us that there will be a day when the Lord judges us. He will be the ultimate examiner. But we have the charge now to examine ourselves or to test ourselves test our attitudes, and test our behavior towards the Lord's table in the context here of other believers. The context here is about relationship to others. Paul said in chapter 8 in 1 Corinthians verse 12 that to sin against one's brother in Christ is to sin against Christ himself. What must we do? We must have well-worn, broken-in Bibles God's word being studied on our own, with our families, with our church. And I'd encourage you to study the one another's of Scripture as a tool for self-examination. So when you come to the Lord's table, you are devoted to one another in brotherly love, accepting one another as Christ has accepted you, caring for one another as you do for yourselves. Look up these one another's in Scriptures and study them. Why? Back to verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Literally, that there must be a standard in which you're going to be judged by, either your own standard or God's standard. And according to Paul here, you will be guilty or liable for the death of Jesus by profaning what that meal stands for. Feasting on the Lord's Supper by way of dividing the church leaving others hungry, going and getting drunk, that is the unworthy manner here. And it desecrates the Lord's table. It's a sinful crime against the Lord. And it will heap judgment both onto the Corinthians and onto us today if we repeat their actions, sending us into peril. So how can we be sure? Paul gives us three tests here to determine whether we're eating at the communion table worthily. And the first here is in verse 28, to examine yourselves. And I believe this has to do with your genuineness before God and your genuineness in relationships to others. The standards of the Christian's life are marked by Scripture and then are lived out in community. The Christian finds no social economic differences of class between people at that meal. The Christian finds only Christ as the one to receive glory and honor, and the Christian finds that all are to be gathered as the united body of Christ. 
And we will do well to realize that we all are blameworthy before God. Yet all are forgiven, for the sins of all have been paid for. Test number one. Do you come to the Lord's table with a genuineness before God and a genuineness in your relationship to others? To put it more plainly, what is your attitude towards other believers and is it Christ-like? The second test here was applied or implied back in verse 22. Do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? You see, if someone partakes in the Lord's Supper and withholds from a selfish pride the meal for another Christian, it's no longer the Lord's Supper. All are equal before God. All are joined together in Christ. All share and equally in his blessings. Test number two. Do you love the church? Are you pursuing unity? And do you seek to put others before yourself? And the third test here is the discerning of the body, verse 29. He now further defines it. If one eats of the Lord's table in an unworthy manner, he eats his way into judgment. This word judgment or judge dominates this section here of the passage. Here is the test to discern the one body of Christ, which is all Christians, part of the universal church or this local church setting. On the one side, the wealthy Corinthians fail to discern this oneness for the one another as a local body by overindulging in food and drink. They will incur God's judgment. And on the other side here, we have this lower caste, the poor Corinthians, they're going hungry. Verse 30, that's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Although we don't know for sure Paul's implications here, it is clear that many have become weak and some have died. So there are more sick than have died. And he would have heard this from the reports that he received of these divisions about how the Lord's Supper is being mishandled. And the word dying here is the literal word for sleep. Some of you have fallen asleep. This may refer to those that are spiritually ill or those that have become weak in the faith. Much like the believers that you may remember in the church of Sardis in Revelation chapter 3. Of that church, you have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up, you're asleep. But Paul seems to have in mind here a much more real sickness and real death. One that stings the physical body. A literal suffering in the flesh. Not simply just a decaying of the spirit. This is a grave warning bell that should awaken the Corinthians. It should awaken us here today. Paul seems to be connecting the abuse of the Lord's Supper and the account of those that have become physically ill and are dying, thus suffering God's judgment in a very real and a very poignant way. Now, I don't understand this as a one-for-one kind of judgment, as in lightning bolts of sickness will come crashing down upon you when you approach the meal unworthily. For we should not be so worthy of considering our, or we shouldn't be so fearful of considering our worthiness. Why? For none of us are truly worthy. 
despite God's grace upon us, we shouldn't be so fearful upon approaching the Lord's table that we may be struck down by God's wrath. But when the Lord's Supper is abused by the community, in the community, it would seem that judgment will fall upon the community. Very practically, some are overindulging, they're getting sick, and they're dying. Some are going without food and are getting sick and are dying. So the actions here of some creating these divisions will affect the whole body. Either way, this is a very dark and trembling reality of the sin of dividing God's church. A serious warning to not a serious warning not to bring condemnation upon our lives by neglecting Christ's sacrifice for us. Paul says in verse 31 here, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not then be judged. We ought to be discerning and test and judge ourselves for our worthiness, not in that fearful, woe is me kind of way. There certainly, certainly ought to be some soberness when approaching the Lord's Supper, so that we would examine ourselves so as not to be examined by the Lord and judged and condemned on the final day. Paul wants us to understand that the judgment in the present day of sickness is not the final judgment for the Corinthians or for us today, but this is a disciplinary judgment with a focus on remediation. It is for correction. That's why he's writing this portion of the letter, for reproof to set them on the proper path. Make it clear we're not talking about a loss of salvation here. Paul's saying with a loud voice, verse 32, when we're judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the rest of the world. The final clause in verse 32 confirms that this earthly judgment is not the final judgment. Breaking in our Bibles will help build godly communities. Paul's concern here is simple and direct. Read the divine scriptures and engage with the community of the body of Christ and eat the Lord's Supper with the Spirit of Christ in your heart. These last two verses in the chapter here, if anyone's hungry, let them eat at home so that when you come together, it's not for judgment. The idea here is don't come to the table with the idea of trying to fill your bellies. He's being sarcastic here, referring back to the beginning of the chapter here. If you satisfy your hunger at home, then you can celebrate this meal together. If you think of it literally, it's foolish. He's not giving them license to indulge themselves and ignore others. He's asking them, telling them, suppress your appetite of worldly pleasures and come and gather in fellowship together. He wants to uproot the Corinthians from the poisonous soil of the Greco-Roman world and replant them in the soil of Christ's loving sacrifice for us all. He says at the very end, the last verse, I'll come with further instructions, perhaps more issues with the Lord's Supper, perhaps reference to other issues we simply don't know. What is our application today? For we should look at ourselves from within, it, within and examine ourselves for what unconfessed sin we may have 
against others in the church? Are we harboring anger or distaste for another? We must seek a Matthew 18 approach of lovingly sharing our sins and our hurts with one another, seeking a lifestyle of confession and reconciliation. This is a strong and stark reminder of Christ's sacrifice for us, remembering what, the Christ, what Christ has done at the cross, looking back daily, dying to self, living for eternity, and doing it in remembrance of him. Let us come to that communion table with great joy and with great thankfulness for our union with Christ and for one another. And one of the most encouraging applications for us today to take with us is that we would be bold in proclaiming Christ's death, burial, and resurrection in order that we may boldly proclaim the gospel to those that need to hear it. And then at the celebration of the Lord's table, we would put ourselves in a place to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So as the church is nourished by Christ and nourished by the Holy Word, we anticipate and long for Christ to come, who will fully one day be present with us in a new heaven and a new earth as we praise and yell to him, come, Lord Jesus, come. Let me close this in a word of prayer this morning. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, may we include other believers in our lives, regardless of age or education, nationality or ethnicity. Lord, bring to mind ways that we divide ourselves among believers. And how we will, if we do that, we'll despise the church of God and humiliate others. Lord, teach us the consequences of breaking fellowship with other believers over non-essential reasons. Bind us together as a Christian community, gathered together under God's holy word. Lord, let us prepare ahead of time for the Lord's Supper and teach us to be a community that studies what Scripture says to discern our readiness for it. Lord, let us with fervent prayer pray, come, Lord Jesus, come, that we would proclaim the Lord's death, burial, and resurrection so that those here today would trust in the saving work of Jesus Christ and dedicate their lives to you, saving them from their sins. Lord, uproot us in our sinful ways when we observe the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Uproot us from the poisonous soil of this world and replant it in the nourishing soil of Christ's loving sacrifice for us. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this church body gathered today. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.